This is Going Out Your Door, the podcast to get you out your door and on the road. My name is Marjorie Frymouth. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am so excited about our topic. We're finally going to get into some of the nuts and bolts of how people um, finance themselves while they're living abroad. The most common way and the way that I have always made money is via ESL teaching. So that's what we're going to talk about today. But first, how are you? I hope you're well. Uh, I'm well. It's a gorgeous, sunny day in Taipei today. I really love the sun. My mood is hugely affected by the weather. So when it's sunny here, I am just in heaven. Um, I went to the park today, read in the park for a while. Um, Although actually, I found out recently that Taiwan is actually in a drought, which blows my mind. I can't believe that Taiwan is in a drought. I mean, it's it feels like it's always raining here and it's just always so humid and moist, although I'm sorry everyone hates that word. Um, but yeah, Taiwan is in a drought. They're having to ration water in some of the like suburbs of Taipei and everyone's really concerned about it. Um, but it's very strange to me when, you know, when I think of drought, like my family is from Colorado, so I think of like the extreme drought and um, you know, fires starting really easily, like, you know, anywhere in the West, in the U.S., um, not being able to, like, start campfires or park your car on dry grass because it might start a fire. And here in Taiwan, a really popular activity and one of the most common tourist attractions is releasing the sky lanterns, where you go to this little mountain town or forest town, um, And you get a paper lantern and you write your hopes and dreams on it. And then you light it on fire and release it into the sky. And it's very beautiful and uh, not great for the environment, but it's really gorgeous and fun. I've done it. And the idea of releasing fire into the wilderness and and having it be totally okay and, and pose no risk of forest fire just blows my mind. So somehow we can still do that. Uh, but Taiwan is in a drought. So I guess I should hope that it rains, but I don't because I love the sun. Anyway, back to our topic at hand today. ESL 101 is everything we are going to go over. So I'll just tell you first a little bit about my personal experience. Um, I decided that I would pursue ESL teaching I think when I was studying abroad in Vienna, um, I think a lot of us, my friends there, really wanted to go back abroad after we graduated. Um, So we talked about it a little bit, and that sort of like opened my eyes to the possibility of that. And then when I was in my senior year back in the States, I was looking at programs and happened to find that there was a um, TEFL certification program running nearby to where I was at school uh, within the next couple months. And so that was just totally lucky because I wasn't in a big city or anything like that. I just really lucked out. Um, And so I signed up for that. That was through Oxford Seminars, and that got me a three-part TEFL and TESOL and TESL degree, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, It was a four-week program. It ran on the weekends for about eight and a half hours a day. Um, So it was about a 70-hour in-person process and then 30 hours online after that. And I paid $1,000 USD for that, which 
you know, seems really steep. That is a lot of money, but it is, you know, a certification program and I can use this for the rest of my life. So I think all things considered, it was a really good investment. And one of the things that I do really like about Oxford seminars is that they provide graduate placement services, um, you know, for the rest of your life (laughs) if you want to be living abroad teaching English when you're 80, which who knows at this point, that might be what I'm doing. Um, So I've, I've worked with them a little bit in exploring the possibility to see like what their um, options are for placing you with schools. I've never gone with any of their recommendations just because they work mainly with like recruiters for big chain schools and big programs like that. So I've been put in touch with a couple of them, um, but ultimately I've always gravitated more towards the uh, you know, smaller private schools, things like that. So I've never actually used their graduate placement services, but they do offer it, which I really, really appreciate. And over the past few days, I've been trying to remember what that uh, course was like, you know, what the actual classes were like. There were about five or six of us in the class. So it was very small and the instructor was really friendly. She had a lot of experience teaching abroad herself, you know, of course, <laughs> um, you would hope that's the case. But she, you know, she had a lot of personal experience to share, which was fantastic. And I think those in-person classes were mainly dedicated towards teaching um like how to structure a lesson, what are the different parts you want to include, um, just how to write a lesson plan, things like that, how to get your students talking, warm-up activities, uh, classroom management techniques, all that kind of thing. And then we did, at the end of those four weeks, we did have to do a practicum where we taught a lesson for all of the other students and the um, instructor in the class. And often... I think if you're working with a bigger program or bigger school, your practicum will be with real ESL students, and that's like the preferred experience, but we didn't have that. We just pretended to be students for each other. Um, And then once that's complete, you do 30 hours of online work, which was primarily grammar, which was a whole eye-opening experience because I think native speakers don't often are not often taught their own language. I know that's that's my experience with English, and I've talked to people from other countries, um, you know, or here in Taiwan, and found out that students don't actually receive much instruction in, like, Chinese language or, or something. Um, so I learned so much about English uh, from this online course, and then also from teaching English, I've learned so much about English, you know, having to prep for lessons or teach teach yourself something before you teach it to the student which is not an ideal situation but I've definitely done that uh, you're like cramming right before to try to figure out a sentence structure or something um so I got my certificate so that is a hundred hour certificate for the three things I said TEFL T-E-S-O-L and T-E-S-L um I started looking for jobs at that point I wanted to go back to Europe um And I was looking mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, and we'll get into locations in a a couple minutes, but it's generally easier to find jobs in those areas as opposed to Western Europe, just because more people want to go to France and, you know, um, Spain and, and those places. So there's more job opportunities in sort of the Central and Eastern countries. And that was also like where I wanted to go. So that was, you know, perfect for me. Um... So I ended up in the Czech Republic at a really small school. 
uh, spent a year there and then wanted to go to Asia. And so you did the same thing, you know, was searching sort of many different countries. I remember there's lots of jobs in Thailand and Vietnam and Japan. Um, Asia is really popular for ESL. Um, and I ended up in Taiwan just through some, you know, recommendations of friends and things like that. So again, I'm at a really small private school. There are tons of big chains and things like that here as well. I've known people who work for them. Um, and the experience really depends on what location you're placed at. You know, simply working for a chain school doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a bad experience because each of their locations has a different vibe and, you know, is run slightly differently and all of that. But I've, I've just always gravitated towards the small private independent schools, which definitely has its cons in addition to its pros. But um, that's just, you know, sort of the environment that I wanted to be in. And every time I've come back to Taiwan, I've worked at the same school. So I haven't done the ESL job search in five or six years. Um, I've been lucky enough to stay at the same school here. All right, so that's a little bit about my experience. So to go back to the beginning of that process, I was listing off those three acronyms. The one that is the most important for our purposes is TEFL, Teaching English as a Foreign Language. This is the most common. It's what you're going to get if you want to teach English abroad. The other two, uh, TESOL and TESL, teaching English to speakers of other languages and teaching English as a second language are used variously in the US and Canada, UK, Australia um, to teach English to people within those native English speaking countries. So there's definitely overlap between these three certificates, but TEFL is the primary one and the one that you're probably <laughs> going to be focused on if you're, you know, here on this podcast with me. Um, my degree did cover all three of those, and I think a lot of others do as well, so you might just get the others as an added benefit. Um, there's also the CELTA, Certificate in Teaching English Language to Adults. This is comparable to the TEFL degree, but in my experience, it's generally considered to be a little bit higher level. A lot of schools in Europe will require a CELTA degree and not just a TEFL degree, um, although CELTA is specific for adults, so it does have that difference as well. There's also the DELTA, which is a diploma, but honestly, if you're looking at the DELTA, <laughs> you're, you, you know more about it at that point than I do, so I'm not going to get into the, the details of that. Um, the TEFL certificate can be completed in person and online. But generally, the in-person courses are considered a little bit more robust, a little bit more reputable, and some schools will specify that they want an in-person TEFL degree. Um, so if you have the option, you know, if there are courses running, once courses are able to start running in the world again in person, um, that, you know, I would definitely encourage that. But if online is your only option, certainly go for that. I know a lot of people who have online only degrees and they've, you know, had no trouble finding jobs. Um, but if you want to set yourself up for the best success, I would say go for the in-person course if you can. And just some things to look for in your, um, you know, if you're, if you're comparing different programs for your degree. I, I didn't compare any different programs. I just saw that this one with Oxford Seminars was running, you know, like I said, nearby me in the next couple months and I jumped on it. But um, if you're comparing different ones and you want to go for the best certificate, you should make sure that the program has at least 100 hours of training and coursework. 
Um, again, schools will often specify that they want um, at least a 100-hour TEFL certificate. So they can be more than that. Try not to do any that are less than that. And ideally, you should have at least six hours of live practice teaching with real ESL students. I definitely did not have that. Again, that is that is the ideal. That is something to strive for. And you want to make sure that the course is taught by experienced university-level professors or instructors. Um, again, I didn't do my due diligence in this, I think, but but this is a good thing to do. And you want to make sure that the course has an accredited curriculum as well. Um, Again, if you're going to invest the money, why not make sure that you're getting the best course that you can given, you know, your circumstances, what courses are being offered, how expensive they are and all of that. But like I said, um, the fact that I might not hold like the highest level degree, I don't think has ever held me back from getting an ESL job or getting an interview or something like that. Even if schools specify that they want a certain kind of certificate, I don't think anyone has ever looked into the details of my certificate, you know, whether it was in person or online or how many hours specifically it was. Um, just being able to say that I hold the certificate and produce it was enough. So they might say that they want a specific thing, but as with any interview process, always apply even if you don't think you meet the requirements um, and generally it'll be fine unless they need that for a specific reason. So I am going to put together a blog post at goingoutyourdoortravel.wordpress.com, which I will link to in the show notes for this episode, where in that blog post, I will link to all of these specific sites that I'm going to mention, because I don't want you to have to like hunt around for a pen or pencil or, you know, write this down in your phone or something like that. Um... But just to list off a few of the top TEFL certification programs, and you could find countless, countless lists of all of these schools and courses and programs. I mean, there are thousands and thousands out there, but there are a few that top most lists. And a couple of them are the International TEFL Academy, Uni Prep Institute, Teaching House CELTA, Premier TEFL, Let's TEFL, Eye to Eye, TEFL Pros, My TEFL. So they all have those cutesy names. And like I said, I'll link to those in the blog post so you can find them there. And just another little note from my own experience. Um, I think generally jobs in Western Europe are a little bit stricter about the requirements. Again, because more people want to go there so they can be a little bit pickier about the, you know, the teachers they hire and the degrees that those teachers hold. Um, so that's where you're going to see, like, they want you to have the CELTA or they want you to have a specific, you know, certificate or something like that. Um, generally, the jobs in Asia, I don't want to say they're a little bit more lax or have lower standards. That sounds really bad, but they're more likely to accept probably like an online only TEFL course or something like that. Um, and again, that totally varies. Like there are really prestigious jobs here in Taipei where you're working for like academies and things like that. And those teachers probably hold advanced degrees. But just generally when you're looking for sort of your standard ESL job, um, the requirements are going to be a little bit lower in Asia than like Western Europe. And again, within Europe, the same can be said, like it'll be easier to find a job in Central or Eastern Europe. And I also want to say that previously it was harder for Americans to get hired in Europe because the school would have to sponsor us for a visa and pay for that process and like a work permit and health insurance and all of that stuff. Whereas British, British teachers could work within the EU without any of those requirements. 
But since Brexit, the Brits will be on the same footing as the Americans and will need the visa and all of that stuff. So I'm wondering if in the next few years, again, like once travel and and all of this opens up again and the ESL market really opens up, if it might be slightly easier for Americans to get some of these jobs because schools won't automatically go for the British teachers um, just because their process is easier. So I'm very excited about that. Um, And you'll also find that some um, dialects or types of English might be preferred in different parts of the world. Um, In Europe, generally, British English is a little bit more preferred. So again, they might be hiring more British teachers because of that. Uh, The school that I worked at in the Czech Republic actually made sure to have a mix of both American and British teachers so that they could offer their students a selection (laughs) of different accents. Uh, But the students could choose whether they preferred to learn um, American English or British English. So, um, you know, you're always going to find all kinds of options. These are just sort of the the trends or the generalizations that I've seen in Asia, American English is usually a little bit more preferred, definitely here in Taipei. Um, there's more American teachers than British, uh, but it, it depends on the part of the world. And of course, it totally depends on the school and all of that as well. So when you are finding your ESL job, you're going to see that, again, there are hundreds of sites where you can just put in your you know, your specifications, what part of the world, what country you want to go to, and it will spit out all of the job listings that it has access to. Um, So, you know, there's lots of of great sites that you can find job listings on. But again, here are a few of the most popular. I've used some of these searching for jobs. Um, And again, these will be linked in the blog post. Transitions Abroad, Teach Away, Dave's ESL Cafe, Dave's ESL Cafe is great for so many things. (laughs) Um, Go Abroad, ESL Employment. So we'll link to all of those and probably a few more as well. Um, A lot of countries and regions will also have sites for like specific to that country. So for Taiwan, the site is called Tealit, T-E-A-L-I-T dot com. And so, you know, it's specific to Taiwan. It's only going to give you job listings here. And I think because of that, it probably has more listings just because it's not serving the entire world. It's specific to Taiwan and schools and employers here know to post their job listings there. Um, That's how I found my job here and as as well as the others that I initially applied to um, and didn't end up at. It's also great for finding apartments and Chinese language classes and so many things. It's like all of the (laughs) the Taiwan... um, social platform is on TLIT. So you are searching for your job. What do you look for? This can be a huge long list. And of course, you're going to want to be more specific as you progress um, in the process with a single school. Like you're going to want to get more and more details, of course, about that job. But in general, when I'm searching, the two things I just immediately look for in the listing are salary and hours, (laughs) the two most important things. So salary kind of goes without saying. Um, You want to make sure or you want to check if it's an hourly paid job or a salaried position. I've only ever worked hourly doing ESL. Um, You kind of have to be careful about what is counted. A lot of places will not pay you for planning or anything like that. Um, I know some schools do or they pay you like half time for planning or or something like that. But um, 
what are the hours? Now, this is not just number of hours per day, although that can be different too. So for an ESL teacher, again, with my experience in the Czech Republic and here in Taiwan, a full schedule is anywhere from like 20 to 25 hours a week. Legally in Taiwan, you have to work 14 hours a week. <laughs> um, I currently work 20. I've worked up to 25 here. And I think when I started, I was at 18. Um, again, then you're doing, I'm doing an hour of planning every day as well. Um, you know, and there can be occasional breaks in the schedule, but you know, you're probably not going to have a 40 hour week unless you're working like a, a nine to five at a specific school. Now I say specific school because most ESL classes run after school or work. So you're probably teaching in the afternoons or evenings, um, you know, maybe like 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. or something like that. I work, well, my classes start at 1.30 right now. I get there around noon um, and they go until 5.30, 6.30, 7.30. I had one once that went till 8.30. I really did not like that. And then I also had one that was a morning class. You know, it was like 8 to 9.30 or something. I also really did not like that. <laughs> I really like having my mornings and late evenings free. That suits me very well. Um, you can also have split days where you'll have some hours in the morning and then a few hours off and then teach more in the afternoon or evening. And, you know, depending on you and your preferences and schedule or what else you have going on, that could work for you. But just um, be aware that you need to look for the total number of hours a week, but you also need to know when they are generally. Um, a lot of schools will also require you to work on the weekends, or you might have two days off, but they're not consecutive, something like that. That's really common with ESL teaching because you're always working around your students' other schedules for school and work. Um, again, unless you're at like an academy or something that is a full-time school. So as you start drilling down a little bit deeper, um, if you're interested in a listing and you want to learn more, look into what are the responsibilities. You know, you're probably going to be teaching classroom hours, but you might have to create lesson plans from scratch, or they might give you some materials, but you have to put them together in a coherent way. Uh, you may have to grade tests or homework or hold office hours, all kinds of things that you just want to be aware of. Uh, this one is interesting. Are you working at one location or traveling to multiple schools? Now here in Taiwan, I you know work at one school, that's our school, but when I was in the Czech Republic, I was mainly at the school, but we also contracted out with a local company. And so once a week I had to go to that company to teach a class um, for the adults there. And so that's just, again, something to be aware of. Are you going to be paid for travel time? All of that stuff. And then will they let you see the contract before you sign it? It's not uncommon for schools to have kind of shady things in the contract. I mean, you know, it's unfortunate you could get a totally legit job, but they, they want to protect themselves and they know that foreigners coming to the country aren't going to be aware of labor laws and all of that stuff. There's also huge turnover with ESL teachers. So again, they're, you know, they're trying to protect themselves. They're doing some shady things. Um and also just in general, even if everything is totally above board, you want to know what's in a contract before you sign it. So unfortunately, at least here in Taiwan, it's common to not provide the contract before the person gets here. Um, 
that was the case with me. And I work for a great school with, you know, an incredible boss. But still, I arrived in the country and, you know, went to the school and I was jet lagged and tired and overwhelmed and sweating profusely because I was not used to the climate. Um, And she handed me the contract and was like, look this over and then sign it. And luckily, it was only two pages and nothing looked suspicious. But I, yeah, I signed it right then and there. Um, And that's very much the norm here. So if they would let you see it ahead of time, that would be great. You also want to look into the visa process, uh, definitely in general for that country. And this is something that we will devote a whole episode to is, you know, the process of getting a visa and how it varies country to country. But you want to be aware of it for the country you're going to. And then also see how much support the school school will provide for that process. Um you know, will they help you do it? Hopefully they will. Uh, Will they pay for it? I've never had a school pay for my visa and usually they're, you know, 200, 300 USD. So they can be pricey. You just want to know what you're getting into ahead of time. And some schools will provide pickup from the airport or they will help you find an apartment or all of those things. Um, In the Czech Republic, they picked me up from the airport Uh, They also helped find an apartment, now that I think about it. I don't think that was an official service. I think they just realized that myself and the other new teacher were incompetent in the Czech Republic, and we really needed help finding an apartment. So they helped us out with that. And that's one of the reasons why I like these smaller private schools, is that they will often do things like that for you. Um, Whereas if you're in a chain, you might just get lost in the process. But at these like little family run schools that are like, oh yeah, you you definitely cannot handle this by yourself. We're going to help you out. Um, sometimes you can also get flight reimbursement where the school will pay you to fly to the country. Uh, that's something that I think is more typical when you're working for a chain. Um, I've never had that. No one has ever paid for my flight. Um, or often there are contract completion bonuses. Again, that's more common with the chains as well. I've never had that either. You also just want to make sure you know where the school is located in the city. Um, For example, in Taiwan, a lot of ESL teachers will take jobs, come to the country and realize that they are not actually in Taipei like they thought. They are like an hour out of the city in like Taoyuan, which is like where the airport is. (laughs) Um, And not that it's a bad place to be, but if you're expecting to be in the heart of the city and you're all the way out there, that could be a bummer. So just make sure that, you know, you know, roughly where it is on the map or something like that. Um, And again, this is super fine print, like once you're in talks with this school for this job, but look into taxes. Um, Are they going to take your taxes out like they should? A lot of schools in Taiwan don't. Uh, Again, that's not legal, so that might be a problem. Uh, You do get higher pay per month then, but then you also don't get those taxes back which is something I look forward to every year is getting my taxes back in the summer. So again, just look into like what the tax situation is, how much you're going to be taxed, health insurance. um, Is the school going to help you get that? Uh, You know, how much are you going to pay for it? What is the process like there? So again, that's more of like the fine details, but it is something that you might want to be aware of before you take the job or move to the country. All right, now what everyone is interested in, how much money can you make? So the lists are going to vary. Every single list I looked at was different in some way, but there are some countries that top every single list. So uh, here they are. The UAE, the United Arab Emirates, is always at the top of the list. 
I've seen that you can make anywhere from 3,500 to 5,000 USD per month. All of my numbers are going to be in USD here. Uh, Kuwait, interestingly, was also at the top of most lists, making about 2,500 to 4,000 USD per month. Japan, 2,000 to 5,000. Saudi Arabia, 2,000 to 4,000. And South Korea, 2,000 to 2,500. So that gives you a little bit of an idea what the high end of the spectrum is. Um, you also want to be aware of the cost of living because you could be making a lot more money. But, you know, if you're living in like a super expensive country, that's going to factor in as well. So you want to just pay attention to that. Um, there are some other countries that were on many lists, but not, you know, at the top of every list. So I just want to mention those. That is China, Oman, Kazakhstan, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Now, I was kind of surprised when I saw Taiwan on this list. Um, yeah, it's definitely possible to make $2,000 a month, but you'd have to have a full schedule and a good job. Um, I make about $1,400 per month, and I've had three raises. I've been at the same school for so many years, you know, so I'm making above the starting salary. Um, so, you know, that gives you some perspective. <laughs> um, I li And I also, like, I live very comfortably here. I could certainly be more frugal and save more money. Um, and cost of living is not that expensive here. I could take on more hours. All of that stuff factors in. Um, but Taiwan did make that list, and that was kind of surprising to me. I also wanted to talk a little bit about where there's the most demand for English teachers. I mean, not that you want to go somewhere just because it's easy to get a job there, but in general, the countries that are really trying to get teachers to go there um, are China. China was the top of every single list, um, you know, partly just because it's a huge country. They need lots of teachers. So China is hiring lots of teachers. South Korea, uh, Morocco. So these kind of surprised me a little bit. Morocco, Colombia, Brazil, and Russia. Spain is also there. Spain doesn't surprise me so much. Um, but again, these are the countries that I saw on multiple places are, you know, really trying to recruit ESL teachers now. Again, that was China, South Korea, Morocco, Colombia, Brazil, Russia, and Spain. So if you don't have any particular area of the world in mind and you want to, you know, you want to go and live somewhere, uh, maybe check out one of those countries. It might be a little bit easier to get a job there. So we've covered how to get your certificate, how to find a job, what to look for, um, you know, once you find a job that you like. And then after that, I feel like there's such variation. I can't necessarily guide you <laughs> without knowing where you're going or, or anything about the school, but um, it could totally vary. You could be in a situation where everything is completely planned out and you just have to show up and open the book and, you know, read what's in front of you. Or, you know, you might be given some resources. That's kind of the situation that I'm in where there is like a syllabus that I follow, but I have a huge degree of freedom in how I present the material. You know, as long as the students complete their their tests and their spelling quizzes and their reading and all of that, I can really do whatever I want with that material. So, you know, we do arts and crafts. We watch videos and movies and do music. I, you know, I've brought my ukulele into class before. Um, so I really like that flexibility of like having a foundation of material, but also, um, 
not having much oversight <laughs> in terms of what I actually do with it um, or how we present it in class. That's sort of the happy medium that I've found and I really like. Um, in other situations, you know, you might like when I was in the Czech Republic, there was a library of materials that we could use. But for the one on one classes, it was really um, do whatever you want or do whatever the student wants. And so we really had to create a lot of those lessons from scratch, which was definitely hard as a first year teacher. Um, and that's another thing is that you might be teaching group classes and you also might be teaching one to one classes. I've done both in both of the schools that I've worked for. Um, Generally, I prefer, well, it definitely depends on the student, but I think I prefer the group classes just because there's less pressure on you <laughs> with more people in the room, um, with more people talking. It's less, you know, less on you to keep the, the conversation and the flow going. And definitely, if you're with a student who doesn't want to talk and it's only the two of you, um, that causes me a huge degree of stress and I just feel like I'm monologuing the whole time, the whole, you know, two hours of the class, which can be a little bit frustrating. Um, you also want to be aware that you're in, you know, an environment that might have different practices or traditions when it comes to education. Um, I'm lucky enough to be at a school that is very, you know, it's called an American school, so we do have that more Western approach. Like I said, I can, um, I have that flexibility in class to present the lessons however I want. But Taiwan in general and Asia in general is very much test oriented, rote memorization oriented, um, score oriented. So a lot of schools just focus on like memorizing the vocabulary words and preparing for the test and all of that. Um, so you might be in an environment that has a different kind of learning than you're used to. And you might have to conform to that. You might have flexibility to do things your way. It totally depends on the country and on the school. Um, another common thing is to have a local teacher in the class with you who's sort of in charge of like the classroom management. That's really common in Taiwan. I've never been in that situation, but I know friends who, who have that. So their job is to present the lesson and then they also have a Taiwanese teacher in there who controls the children <laughs> um, and I imagine there's pros and cons to that as well I, like I said I've never I've never had that um, I also know people who worked in countries where corporal punishment is still a thing and you know that was something that they had to decide for themselves that they were or were not going to engage in that uh, but even if you decide that you're not going to do that, it still might be done in front of you or in your classes or something like that. You know, they might be um, hitting the children, uh, hopefully on the hand or something like that. But again, just something to think about, something to look for, um, figuring out what your comfort level is and, and what you might do in situations like that. And so I mentioned several times that I specifically chose to always work at small, family-run, private schools as opposed to these big chains that, you know, have locations all over the country or even all over the world. Um, that was definitely a conscious choice on my part. Um, I think to some degree it does come down to like romanticizing the idea of, um, you know, an independent school versus working for a big chain. But... I wanted the closer connection that comes with that. You know, um, private schools are often smaller. There's fewer teachers. You sort of have 
um, a tighter knit team in that case. I think you really get to know the students a little bit better. Uh, classes might be a little bit smaller. And I just liked that environment of um, not having as much structure and you know if you're working for a big chain there's probably standards that you have to meet or that the students have to meet um, and that doesn't really appeal to me I like the flexibility that you have with these more independent schools um, it is a trade-off though because there are definitely cons I think communication is not always as good at the smaller schools, um, you know, just because there aren't built-in systems or processes in place, things can often get lost in translation, haha, <laughs> no pun intended, um, but, you know, lost in translation or not communicated properly just because those flows of communication were not set in stone and things like that. Um, if it's uh, an independent school, they might not have their curriculum or their materials really set in stone, which again can be good, uh, but it also means that you might be sort of grasping at straws in terms of like <laughs> what to actually teach them or what materials to use or things things tend to change a little bit more frequently. Let's try this. No, let's try this. Um, and I think you also have to be a little bit more flexible because even the schedule can change more frequently at um, a private school like that. You know, you can decide or the the manager or the boss can decide that, you know what, like let's do a different event today or like let's cancel class and teach all the students a dance or something like that. And sometimes I really, really enjoy that. That can be a lot of fun. Um, I think it's really good for the students, you know, so yeah, like let's cancel class, let's do something fun. It can also be really frustrating if you put a lot of time and effort into planning your lessons and suddenly they're all down the drain for that day. Um, so like I said, it is pros and cons in any situation and you just sort of have to decide what your priorities are or what works for you. So that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope I've given you a comprehensive yet brief <laughs> overlook at the process of getting certified and finding your job and some things to look for. I would love to know if you're planning to take up ESL teaching, if you're planning to go somewhere, um, again, once that's all possible, what are you looking for? What are you prioritizing? What part of the world do you want to go to? I would love to hear about all of that. Also, if you've done this before or you're doing it now, what was the process like for you? How did you end up at your school, with your job, in your country, all of that? So you can send me any of those questions or any of those stories at goingoutyourdoortravel at gmail.com, also at goingoutyourdoor on Instagram and Facebook, and on Twitter at goingoutyour. I cannot wait to hear your stories and share some of my next time here on Going Out Your Door. Mm -hmm.